Hi, everyone. Welcome to Luxury Inside Podcast in partnership with the Fashion Network. My name is Jonathan Siboni, and I'm the CEO of Luxury Insight, uh, which is the first data platform and agency in the luxury industry. We'd like to start 2019 with a new way to discover luxury insights and kind of give you a behind-the-curtain view of the forces and people driving the industry. So today, we are very happy and honored to have with us Stanislas de Cassis, who's the former CEO of beautiful houses like Cartier, Van Cleef and Apples, as well as Godfredini, who's the editor-in-chief of Fashion Network. They will have a great discussion about their experiences and trends on the luxury market. Hello, everybody. My name's Godfredini, and I'm here with Stanislas de Curcies. Hi, Stanislas. Hi, Godfrey. Um, Stanislas is a true expert in luxury who's had a very brilliant career in the industry. Um, he has been the uh, president of one of the world's greatest jewellery brands, Van Cleef and Arpels. He was also a uh, president of Richemont, one of the greatest luxury conglomerates in the world. He was a member of the Directoire of uh, the Comité Colbert, which is French luxuries governing organization. And he is currently a sophisticated investor with a company called SAVIH, which invests in startup, in technology and luxury. We're honored to have him here today. It's not often we get a chance to speak to a person who's had such a brilliant career. But I'd like to begin at the beginning and ask Stanislav, when did you first get the idea you would have a career in luxury? You know, I was born in Reims, which is the city of Champagne. And uh, as a teenager to make money, I, I was harvesting grapes at the end of the summer before going back to school. And I loved, you know, this idea of taking the best of earth, you know, the grapes of, uh, and to mix it with the best of mankind, the craftsmanship in, in the cellar uh, to create a great, uh, you know, uh, uh, the great champagne. And also to learn patience because you need to wait three years to be able to drink the champagne. After that, I, I went into, into business school, started at Procter & Gamble because I loved the American vision of the world. I love this Anglo-Saxon direct way, and I love marketing, which is to be interested by the desire of the clients, the, the understanding of the consumer, and I love the world of strategy and global brands. After that, I'm married. Unfortunately, I lost my first child, uh, called Alban of Sudden Death Syndrome. And it was a shock for me. And uh, when he was buried, the priest said, Alban, that was his name, he was loved and he loved. He had a successful life. Let us have also a successful life. And then, then I realized that you could have a successful life by being loved. And I realized that he had also an emotional side. Proctor was very rational. And uh, so I, I shift career and went into luxury because I, I think in luxury, there is a lot of emotions, there's a lot of creativity and also rational side. So you have you have the two aspects, uh, the left brain, right brain. Uh, the, and, and I enjoyed this world, uh, starting first at Mont Blanc in France, when we started to go from wholesale into retail, from pen manufacturer into a real luxury brand uh, with creation of the leather, fragrance, eyewear, watches, jewelry. Then moved to president of NCU of Mont Blanc in America. To interrupt you a second, this was 30 years ago when you, when you began your career, or yes. 35. 25 years. Uh, 25 years ago. Um, why is it, 
in the last few years, all the great luxury groups, LVMH, Caring, uh, Richemont, uh, have taken graduates from Procter & Gamble. What What is the secret? Just I'd love to know that. I think the idea that you need to have intuition this, you know, luxury is about intuition, you know, uh, but you need also to rationalize it and conceptualize it and with strategies. And I think, you know, fast consumer goods and, uh, and, and with Procter & Gamble as, as an example, are very good companies to put things in strategy, to, to duplicate good practices and to have worldwide expertise. So it's a force to accelerate the growth of luxury. And I think, you know, if you think of it, Picasso was a great painter, but he had also a gallery. Uh, and the, the gallery was helping me to become known on a worldwide basis and to have, if you want, an expansion strategy. So I think this is probably why you had a um, successful PNG in luxury industry. And after Montclair, you were saying, where did you go then? So I was, you know, the president of, of Montblanc in America. Yes. Then Alfred Daniel, I was the international marketing director for Alfred Daniel, based in London, which was, you know, understanding how to create product. Then be, uh, was promoted president of Cartier in France. So very retail, high-end with, you know, high-end with haute joyery. Then was promoted president of Cartier in America. Then was promoted um, president and CEO of Van Cleef & Appels Worldwide, which is an incredible journey because we grew tremendously this beautiful, it was a sleeping beauty at that time, but to make it one of the most profitable uh, brand of Richemont and uh, with uh, strong uh, recognition all over the world. Then I was promoted uh, president of CEO of uh, Cartier, which is the number one brand of, of Richemont. And then after that, president of Richemont for France. And now I'm advising companies, I'm on a board of, of several companies, uh, Barnes International Real Estate, Rémi Cointreau, and uh, also an investor and uh, mentor of startups, because I believe that we live in an environment where you know, there's a room for new ideas, disruption, data is a great way to disrupt and accelerate the success and the growth. Uh, what were the lessons you learned in terms of acquisitions? You were in the, that group in a period where they acquired quite a lot of companies in watches, in, in fashion, uh, and developed them. What were the parameters they used that you learned that you apply to what you do today? If you stand back, Godfrey, if we try to understand what makes those luxury brands successful, first, it starts with an expertise. So Louis Vuitton, expert in trunks and leather. Louis Cartier, expert in uh, jewelry. Alfred uh, Van Cleef in, uh, in jewelry. Then from this expertise, you know your customer and you listen to your customer. You listen to your clients. And what do they tell you? Number one, they say, oh, please, could you make something which is more accessible? Because I love this high jewelry that I'm wearing on, on during galas, but I also have got a day life. I need day jewelry. So Van Cleef and Appels probably invented and created Alhambra. Cartier invented the love and the trinity. So you got what we call democratization. First way to expand. The second way, the clients are telling you, look, could you create something? You're, you're so talented. I love the way you create, but could you do something different? For example, I love the jewelry, but my husband would like to have a watch. Mr. Cartier, could you could design a watch? And then you, this is called diversification. So all those brands start to diversify. And now Hermès is in, in watches, in fashion, in uh, furniture, in fragrance. So the second way to build growth. And the third way, 
is internationalization because you got clients and I read the letters from of the Cartier saying, I love what you're doing in Paris. I'm an American, but I live in New York. Why don't you come to New York? So, and then you start to build New York, uh, Hong Kong, uh, Shanghai, uh, and Seoul. So from an expertise and a family, you go with the three dimension of expansion, which is democratization, diversification, and internationalization. And all that brings a pyramid, which is the most solid, sturdy architecture there is in the world. What is it about the uh, French uh, culture and mentality and DNA that makes France such a fertile place for luxury brands? We, we get them in Italy and Milan, in London, New York, but no country seems so good at doing it. Why is that? I think it's probably the combination of, uh, number one, this idea about artisan, about art appliqué, about craftsmanship, uh, which dates back to, you know, uh, one of good example is obviously Versailles and Louis XIV. But this idea that it's very important to have another form of art. It's applied art, it's decorative art, but it's art. Second is this idea of what is important is what you translate to the next generation. You know how much we value what we call patrimoine, how much we value, you know, castle, cathedrals, and we want to convey them to the next generation. It's like the heritage. Uh, so you want to, to build something for the long term. And third, this idea of, we believe that we've got a message for the world. You know, this idealistic revolution ideas, we say it's for the world. So we've got a messianic view. We believe that France has got a message for the world. France is the number one country for uh, tourism. So I think, you know, when you have this idea of craftsmanship, you know, translating to the next generation and a message for the world, plus creativity. We value very much artists. You know, in France, the most revered people are not business people. They're not politicians. They're artists. A writer, a painter, a sculptor in France is good. So, you know, when you've got this four dimension, uh, value, we value creativity. We value craftsmanship. We value transmission in time. And we value, we believe that we've got a vision for the world. Many of the luxury brands nowadays are quoted on the stock markets. Uh, LVMH, Hermes, Ralph Lauren, Kering, Richemont, where you are. So there's a very objective test of Prada is quoted in Hong Kong. Sometimes there's been a little bit of uh, comparison and criticism that maybe Richemont has not performed quite as well in terms of its capitalization as LVMH or, or Hermes. Do you think that's fair or it's lazy journalism? I think what, what, first what's, uh, what is incredible about luxury is although it's on stock market, mm. it's always controlled by one family. <laughs> yes. If you think of it, it's, it's atypical. Yeah. It's, it's not the same thing for other industry. And it's probably because there's a relationship with a family and a long-term view. And I always remember you and Rupert saying, make this company better for my kids than for me. So it's always, you know, building for the next generation. It's everything against short-term view, which is a bit antagonist with your stock market, which sometimes tends to have a, a short-term view. So it's always making investment for the long-term, investment in manufacturing, in creation, in people. It's having a long-term long strategies, which at the end of the day, um, it does pay on the long-term. And I think fantastic to have on the helm of all those groups you mentioned, whether they're public or not, because Chanel is not public, but same management, one family, and this ability to translate to the next generation. Okay. With the possible exception of Silicon Valley or high technology, it's been remarkable in my lifetime, 
that's the industry I've ended up in, in fashion and luxury, but also that few industries have grown as well and become have grown as rapidly. Even in the last recession from 2008, when so many industries could barely uh, keep their turnover, many luxury brands still grew at double-digit growth. Why do you think that is? Because at the end of the day, it's about something which is essential, which is wellness. Uh, luxury is the ability to say to somebody, I love you. <laughs> yes. Uh, Honestly, you can live without jewelry, you can live without a watch, because you, you got your cell phone is telling you the time. But it's quite difficult, Godfrey, to live without telling somebody I love you. Because love is essential, even if you start with loving yourself, which is a very good starting point. <laughs> so if you love yourself, you're going to buy jewelry. And it's also, you feel good. There's a feel-good factor when you buy something which is very creative, which is extremely well-crafted, which is going to end your time. Isn't it great to be able to, to hand over uh, an, an Hermes bag from generation to generation? You know, it's or a Vacheron watch from generation to generation. You feel good. You feel good. And you say, by the way, it's also very smart because the jewelry I bought at Van Cleef & Appels is worth more now at Chris's and Sotheby's than what I bought it. <laughs> so yeah. you, you're able to say, I love you. You have this idea of wellness, mm. making good bets, because, good purchase because it makes sense from financial point of view. And and um, and also more and more you're extremely well taken care of because this idea of the client's behavior, the client journey is very important. We want to to take a very personal approach. You know, you feel good because you're you're recognized. People remember your birthday. People remember all your good occasions. You you feel good. So I'm not surprised. It's 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 essential and it will continue to grow. One brand, uh, I mean, I, I, we're going to go and talk about technology now, but um, one brand that's always uh, impressed me is Chanel, which is not quoted on the stock market, unlike most of the other ones or many others, uh, and doesn't sell very much on the web, you know. It, it's, and if you talk to their CEO, Bruno Pawlowski or Karl Lagerfeld, they always talk about the customer journey, the customer experience. But I was very struck recently that after 50 years of never releasing their figures and apparently even paying a fine to the, the Tribunal de Commerce in, in France every year to not release their figures. They finally an announced their figures this last year that their turnover was over $9 billion. Why did you think they did that? Probably because changing time, and you know, there's something new. You know what is very vital for luxury brand is trust. The only way to build trust in the past was longevity. The fact that you've been around the corner over 150 years, yeah. the fact that you've survived First World War, survived 1929 crisis, Second World War, give you credential. They say, okay, you're, you're good enough to be enabled, so you're the best of the crowd. It was the only way to build, so long way to build trust. Now there's another new way, which is community. The fact there's a community in the digital age which is telling you there's a large crowd of people saying, I've tested this brand and this is great or it is bad. It's ethical, unethical, makes a huge impact on your trust. So now, and so it will help the emergence of new brands. It's also make the existing brands more vulnerable if they are not 100% ethical and if they're not more transparent. The way things are sourced, the way it's manufactured. Uh, so I think... To be transparent with number, it's like being transparent with your impact on the environment. It's something which is 
more requested now to be sure that you know you're doing things the proper way. Technology, artificial intelligence, these are all the buzzwords people talk about nowadays. Um, uh, what do you see the role of technology in luxury and in when you're making decisions about brands? I, th I think technology and specifically data is an accelerator of success. It's like a booster. If you use data, you're going to be smarter, you're going to be quicker to identify if you got a hit or a miss. It's like now, you wouldn't dream of, you know, running around or traveling without a GPS. You've got a GPS in the planes, in the boat, in the car, even when you're walking, so a GPS all the time. Now, data and technology is your GPS to know if the product you're launching is making a hit. If this is the case, you need to accelerate the production. If the advertising or the digital advertising you're putting is hit or miss. So this is helping you to accelerate, which is great because if you accelerate on a hit, on a success, on a bestseller, an iconic product, you're going to get better revenue. And it's helping you to stop in case it's a dog, which is also quite important. Otherwise, you're going to have extra overstock. And remember to happen what in a few brands, for example, Burberry, when they had to destroy stock, it's inacceptable now to destroy stock. So you need to be sure that when you're creating a new bag, a new watch, a new jewelry, a new dress, and, and then data is fabulous. It's really giving you The insight, for example, you know, luxury insight as a startup, it's, it's like having a world in focus rather than unfocus. In focus, you know what's happening in the region, you know what's happening on, on, uh, yeah. on Instagram, on Facebook, you know what's happening in the boutique, you know what's happening on prices. You really are much more, so it's like having glasses or having electricity in a room. It's better to see And with and delight, then um... everything nowadays is uh, increasingly uh, digital. It's hard to find people under 30 who read newspapers. Yes, correct. Um, I uh, tragically, <laughs> and uh, uh, but I always notice too when I go to an LVMH company, or uh, for example, not to mention it all the time, that they have a daily digest that you can that all the executives and, uh, and all the managers, they gave it out to thousands of people. And sometimes when you're waiting, you can, it's sitting there, you can read it. And I'm always gratified if my story in, in the digest. But what strikes me is how much there is. It's often, you know, uh, 60, 70 stories. Yes. It would take you several hours to read them all. You know, you. How, so how does a manager or decision maker filter through all that? and know what to read and know, learn the right lesson and not be distracted? Probably what is very important is, is, is the feedback because I think, you know, at the end of the day, what yeah. matters is, yeah. is, you know, nothing beats the, the sales. I mean, if the, the clients are buying it or not. Mm. I love uh, magic yeah. and, and magicians yeah. and I love the mentalist. Yes. And, you know, the mentalists are great because one believes that they can read into your mind. Mm. In fact, they're not reading into your mind. Mm. They're just perceptible to a lot of facts in the oh. way you behave, the way you move, your, your eyes contact. Mm. So, basically, they're fantastic to gather data yeah. and interpret the data. Mm -hmm. And now, with data, you've got company startups like Luxury Insight. Eritech oh. is another one. Yeah. Eritech is a, is a startup where they're analyzing all what's happening on Instagram. The product which are in pictures, 
the product that they're going, that are seeing more and more, mm -hmm. the product, the, the Instagram with the product which are translated and forwarded to other people, mm -hmm. uh, or the one which are decreasing. So they can tell you, look, your handbags is going up through the roof. Mm -hmm. This one is going down. This dress oh. is up. Oh. This watch is down. So it's very important because you got feedback. And then out of this massive number of data, what yeah. is important is to focus on what the client, what is their reaction? And the good thing is, it's even more true than asking questions to the clients because you don't have the bias of, I'm mean, telling you something, I'm behaving differently. Mm -hmm. So it's very important to yeah. have the true factor. Mm -hmm. It's really what the way you act. It's not the way you tell me. And also it's predictive because if you're looking at more and more of this, it's because you're looking, you like it and you're purchasing it. So th that's good. So it's sometimes true and predictive. Mm -hmm. So that's fantastic. Uh, advantage of this data now, uh, which is available and was not available a few years back. Would you say there is a, in French you say, a décalage, a difference between increasingly a public, a general public, which is wary of big technology, of the big five that feels that they're invasive, that they that are increasingly offended if they ask some question on their WhatsApp, they immediately get an advertisement on their Facebook, Instagram page or suggesting they do something. And a rational decision maker who loves all this information, do you think there's a difference of opinion there between the consumer and the manager in their view of technology? I think this is Socrat who said, when he was asking a question, what is the best thing on earth? He said, the best thing on earth is the tongue. <laughs> because the tongue, you tell, you can tell poems, mm. you can tell I love you, you can sing, you can mm. tell stories. And you say, oh, great, the tongue is the best thing. And what is the worst thing? He said, the tongue, because the tongue can lie, can <laughs> tell rubbish, can insult. So, you know, the same could, could be applied to what you said, this, this technology, which is the, we can be, it's like the sword with two edges. It's, it can be used in both sense. But there's a fantastic advantage and we should embrace new technology because you know it's it's our world we are 21st century it's really our world when you're investing in, in in companies and startups and technology specifically what are the lessons you've learned from working in a big globally ambitious luxury brands that you apply when you're making decisions about where you invest your money i think first you need to work on a need or pain you need to bring a solution to this world mm -hmm. Uh, you're not creating something for the pleasure of creating it. You mm. need to solve a problem mm. and to bring a definite solution, mm. number one. Mm. And this problem needs to be big or this market needs to be big. Mm. Second, you need to have a reason for being, mm. a diversi differentiation, uh, to bring something new to this world, something unique, something different. Mm -hmm. And third, team, 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 the quality of the team. Mm -hmm. uh, somebody who is, who is able to build talent, to have a vision, to be ethical. So those are the three parameters which are, which are key. Nowadays in the luxury world, um, uh, people are increasingly surprised by how much money is spent buying luxury brands. And uh, uh, do you think, and that's partly because people say we're running out of luxury brands to buy. Uh, I think everyone was surprised last year when uh, Versace was sold for nearly four times its annual revenue or LVMH bought a hotel group for several times. As. Do you think there is a now a shortage of, of brands to buy and do you think people are making rational decisions to pay so much money to buy those brands? Well, I think they, they pay a large sum of money because I think it's worth it. Mm. 
because you know first you you're difficult to buy 100 years of history oh. because it takes time you know and oh. then suddenly you can buy 100 years of history oh. you you can buy credential yeah. the fact that you've been able to go from crisis to crisis you got stories you got and stories have got legs you got international expansion and you believe that you're going to accelerate it's like a rocket you got stage one stage two stage three you say stage one has been done now I can accelerate because I will expand Uh, geographically for some brand which are not... Some of them not. So Versace was only a 40-year-old company. And, yes. You know, its founder had died, so... Still, you would still apply that law. Because, yeah, because you've got a platform. So from this platform, uh, I believe that your rocket, which is stage two, yeah. is worth more than a rocket with stage one because you've already done... <laughs> yeah. the, the, the takeoff it takes a oh, lot of oh, energy. Oh, oh. Uh, and then if you buy it stage two, you... You're going to accelerate and you can have a good return. It's not guaranteed, yeah. but it's worth it. Uh, and then this diversification, we talked a lot about diversification and into brands. The ones you've managed, even how they've went into many different areas. Uh, but to go into the hotel business is qualitatively different in a way, is it not? Well, but at the end of the day, what matters is the client. is really listening to the clients and the journey he wants to have. And now, as you know, everybody is talking about the client's experience. Yeah. So it's not only the product, it's the emotions. We all love, you know, to, to tell a story to the kids. And when we are kids, we love to, to listen to stories. We love to see Netflix because we love stories, which are the best way to create emotions. But to have an experience, you know, an hotel is quite an experience, if you think of it, because yeah. it's a lot of trust. You even sleep in the room hopefully with no fire, you eat, hopefully with no intoxication. So there's a lot of trust. So this is the ultimate client experience. Yeah. And if you know clients very well, they can buy your product, but they can buy you an experience, which is a beautiful journey and escapade. For me, it's quite natural. It's, it's being attracted to the client. And when we were selling high jury at, at Van Cleef or, or Cartier, we were creating and organizing events uh, for the clients taking them for three days cruise or three days in a beautiful hotel or in a castle. So we were even taking care of their, of the journey. So it's part of the same. The physical journey. Physical, absolutely. What the industry is really about is you are dream merchants in a way of, of tangible objects. But the way you speak about it, it's more an emotional thing than a physical thing. Yes, it is. I believe that at the end of the day, this is an emotion. And I remember when the people said, I will always remember ah. uh, when my boyfriend offered me this watch. And the watch, it was written, let's meet at five o'clock, which is quite, you know, quite... Uh, We don't know what happened at five o'clock, but it was quite a promising rendezvous engraved on a golden watch. So you're right. At the end of the day, it's an emotion, something you can tell from generation to generation and, you know, something we can um... learn from. You uh, were a member of the Comité Colbert. It's a famous organization. Once again, it's kind of the most famous uh, European luxury assembly of companies. I mean, they have the Walpole in, in England and they have uh, Alta Gamma in Italy, but they, they don't quite have as much force. And within Comité Colbert, once again, there was a, a variety of, of categories. They've even added uh, avant-garde uh, pâtissiers like Pierre Hermé and they have Grand Palais. What did you learn from that experience that you're applying? The idea that we are more co-conquering the world than being competitor. There's no limit. We are talking about emotion. Oh. There's no limit to emotion you can have. 
So the idea is to expand the market, to expand the expertise in terms of training, to have retail, great retail people, to have artisans. So this idea we are conquering the world. It's like the gathering of painters. When you have paintings, you know, uh, Les Grandes Expositions, uh, when you know, you know the, the, the Matisse, the Picasso, we're talking to each other to see how they can expand. So the idea, how can we conquer the world together? Is it good time to go to Korea? Is it good time to go to these countries? Uh-huh. Uh, we need to have proper and strong advertising uh, magazines, uh, strong digital, strong education. So we have a lot of common interest and that's great to share that and to share the proper the good experience and also to be ambassador when we were doing uh, all together activities in one country celebrating America celebrating Russia celebrating Japan or China where we were doing festival where all the luxury brands together were presenting we've reached half an hour <laughs> so uh Stanislav the the Kersis, uh, dream maker uh, uh, executive decision maker Um, ambassador for French luxury. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Godfrey. It's been a pleasure.